Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 124 for the second half of January 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Astronomical Distance Ladder. Now, I've been wanting to do this episode for over two years, but I haven't really been able to find a good angle. Then I found an old Coast to Coast AM episode from almost exactly 16 years ago when Art Bell interviewed the now-convicted felon Kent Hovind, a young Earth creationist. In it, Mr. Hovind tried to claim in typical creationist spin that we have no idea how far away objects actually are. Therefore, you can't claim that objects are billions of light years away. Therefore, the claim that light had traveled that long in order to get here is moot. And you don't even have to invent new physics about light speed changing in order to make the universe only 6,000 or 10,000 years old, which was the topic of episode 81. So, it's my vault to launch into this episode of how we know how far away things are in the universe. And I'm actually going to address young Earth creationism very little. Uh, But before we really get started, I'm going to give a possibly gratuitous and very brief overview of Kent Hovind himself. He is a young Earth creationist of the extreme kind. If you listen to him speak for any period of time, you will hear him deny basic science, which is significant considering that he was a grade school science teacher for many years. You'll hear him double-talk in order to avoid answering direct questions and instead answer the question that he wants to. You'll hear him say that dinosaurs are still alive and they're the cryptids like the Lake Ogopogo monster or Nessie. And then he'll, you know, the stuff that he doesn't really want to address, he'll simply say is baloney, such as how dinosaurs died is baloney. It wasn't an asteroid strike. It was, well, they're still alive, so they haven't died out yet. Uh, Or that there are areas of reversed magnetic field in the Earth's crust. That's just baloney, and I think I actually played a few clips of him in past creationist-themed episodes, like the magnetic field uh, reversals from a young Earth creation standpoint. Now, Mr. Hovind is not a PhD, despite calling himself doctor. His degree comes from a diploma mill in Colorado called Patriot University from 1991. The introduction to his thesis, and by the way, his thesis is not public, but WikiLeaks posted it almost a decade ago. Uh, His intro starts out with, Hello, my name is Kent Hovind. I am a creation-slash-science evangelist. I live in Pensacola, Florida. I have been a high school science teacher since 1976. End quote. And it goes downhill from there with sentence structure that you would expect from an elementary school student, including multiple exclamation points at the end of sentences, lengthy quotes so that he doesn't have to write and come up with his own trite words, uh, the insertion of random poems that he wrote when contemplating a passage of the Bible, not knowing that A.D. goes before the year, such as A.D. 456 as opposed to 456 B.C., and various other things that would clearly be rejected by any real thesis committee. That is why I will not refer to him as Dr. Hovind, uh, although he does call himself sometimes Dr. Dino as well. Mr. Hovind is currently in jail. He is serving time in federal prison, as is his wife, for tax fraud. Effectively, they claimed that Mr. Hovind was in the kingdom of God and therefore not subject to U.S. taxes. Yes, there are lots of other bits to the case, and he's been 
really clogging up the court system's writing appeals for the last practically decade, but that's the basic idea if you really look into it. It was basic tax fraud. So, with that said, and as with many of the coast-to-coast guests that I have used clips from in various episodes, he is incredibly frustrating to listen to. And now that I got that out of my system over the last four and a half minutes or so, you get to listen to him for about five minutes. And I promise this is the only clip in this episode. The rest is me droning on about science. But you need to get an idea of how he makes his argument. Now, that does lead us to a rather intriguing question, and that is, we are receiving light, uh, Doctor, from stars that are uh, as many as 15 or more billion years out in light years. How could that be if Earth is 6,000 or even 100,000 years old? Well, which of those do you want to tackle first? I don't care. You pick it. Uh, This is a typical... uh uh, ploy of an evolutionist who's getting desperate. They they will <laughs> say something like, uh, "You have to discard all of biology, you know, uh, right. et cetera, as if all of those just by calling those names of those sciences that that somehow is evidence for evolution, okay. which it certainly is not. Uh, I like all of those sciences. I, I collect information on all of that and, and and taught it and loved it and still study on it. And there's absolutely nothing in any of those sciences to to go against the creation." Uh, uh, philosophy. There's no, there's no um, hard science in those branches. Well, let, let us pick astronomy since okay. we astronomy, gave that, the starlight. That, yeah, starlight. Okay, if somebody tells you a star is 15 billion light years away, yeah. I would like to know how they figured that number. Uh, you know, who held the other end of that ruler? How did you measure that? I taught trigonometry. Um, from trigonometry, you, you can only measure, uh, uh, you can measure a triangle if you know two sides and one angle, or right. two angles and one side. Right. Uh, you can get a little further by using what's called the parallax method, where you once you know one point, you compare it to another point as we move around the sun. But Earth's orbit around the sun is uh, 16 light minutes across. Mm-hmm. If we convert this all to uh, um, inches to make it easier, let's say Earth's orbit is 16 inches across. Our, and we can look at a star in January. We can look at the star in June. We have two observation points. We can now make a triangle. Right. Talk to the star. The problem is... There's over half a million, 526,000 minutes in one year. If I told you to draw a triangle that is uh, point A and B are 16 inches apart, right. point C is 526,000 inches away, you now have a very skinny triangle. You sure do. That would be like having points A and B uh, one foot apart and point C 6.2 miles away. You get two surveyors to set up their transits one foot apart, focus in on a dot six miles away, and tell me the angle or the distance. So what you're you're saying is it is impossible for them to measure. That's absolutely correct. Nearly all astronomy books will say using uh, parallax trigonometry, the only real hard science to measure these distances, will give you a maximum of 100 light years. I think even 100 light years is stretching it as far as being able to prove anything you know, accurately, because you're dealing with such minute measurements. You're dealing this out, you know, 15 decimal places as far as measuring your angle. That just can't be done. Okay, even, that doesn't, I'm not saying the stars aren't that far away. They might be. But I think modern scientists have this tendency to want to make everybody think, hey, we're smart, we know everything. Mm-hmm. And that's simply not true. This is an awfully big universe. So you're not completely discounting. 
Oh, no, no. Yeah. They, they could be that far away. But if they are, God put them that far away so we could look up into the night sky and observe all this um, endless depth of beauty. Sure, and oh, wow, you know, with the effect. There's three things I would point out as far as the question on starlight. Number one, we simply cannot measure those distances, no matter what anybody says. So they're making up those numbers. They're basing it. They're, they're making up the numbers based on the luminosity. You know, well, it looks pretty bright, therefore it must be pretty close. Or it doesn't look too bright, it must be pretty far away. Pretty shaky ground. You know, take that to any court of law and see how far you get. <laughs> um, they, so they could be that far away. My point is we can't measure it. Secondly... There's absolutely no way to prove that the speed of light has always been consistent all through space or all through time. The whole idea behind a black hole is that light can be affected by gravity. Yes. And therefore cannot escape because the escape velocity of this dense material is beyond 186,000 miles a second. Right, you are. So if light's affected by gravity, then is the speed of light a constant? Could light be accelerated toward galaxies and decelerated away from galaxies? Um... There's no way to prove the speed of light has been the same you know, all through history. All we've ever measured it is here on Earth in our atmosphere. So we don't know that the speed of light is a constant necessarily. Well, I believe science does try and determine the distance uh, by the amount of redshift. Okay. Nobody knows for sure what's causing the redshift. Uh, they think it might be the Doppler effect. Uh, if the planet or the star is moving away, uh, you would get the same effect as if you're sitting at a train track and you hear a train coming in. The, the, the pitch in the ch train whistle changes as it passes you. That's for sure. That's called the Doppler effect of sound. Uh, the theory is that maybe the same thing affects light, that light is affected by a Doppler effect. It could be. Okay, I'm not arguing. But if the star is moving toward us, we would get a blue shift. And cer certainly some of the stars do exhibit a blue shift. Scientists look out there, astronomy, astronomers look out there and see some of the stars are giving a blue shift in the spectrum. And some of the stars give a red shift some of the time and a blue shift some of the time. After a minute-long discussion into the Big Bang, which was a digression and I'm not going to get into for this episode, but there will be a future episode on Big Bang denial, Hovind gave the third reason as being that God simply could have made everything look old even though it's recently made. He gave the analogy of Adam being fully formed even on day zero and already knowing language and various other things. So... Basically, uh, God did it. So now that you have an idea of what some young Earth creationist types claim, I can spend the rest of the episode completely ignoring them and talking about this important concept. Like much of astronomy today, this is something that required the technological advances of the 20th century to be developed. The entire concept is that there are different types of methods for figuring out how far away an object or group of objects is in space, and each method has a limited distance over which it works. But, because there are so many, they overlap, and therefore each overlap is used to calibrate or bridge between different techniques. In this sense, you would use the lowest rung of the ladder to measure close-up objects. You would use another rung to measure objects that are farther away, another to measure more distant ones, and maybe a different one to measure those same distant ones to get a calibration, and then each one is calibrated by their neighboring rungs and bridges you to other systems of measurement. So one of the most basic and fundamental units of measure in the distance ladder is the astronomical unit, or AU. This is the average distance between the Earth and Sun, basically. This is important because knowing how big it is is required for our second rung in the ladder, which I'll talk about uh, looking at the script, maybe two minutes or so. 
Kepler's three laws of planetary motion are what set us up for making and measuring distances across the solar system. His third law, that the cube of a planet's distance from the sun is equal to the square of its year, provides us with a direct way to measure how far away objects are. His form was a proportion, basically what I just gave you, where the planet's distance is measured in AUs and the year was measured in Earth years. Therefore, if we measure that Mars takes about two Earth years to go around the sun, then we know that it's about 1.4 Earth distances away from the sun. Newton's form of Kepler's third law allowed us to put in real numbers once the gravitational constant was determined about 200 years later but we still didn't have a good measure of the AU, this fundamental unit of measure in the solar system. To get that, we measured Venus going across the surface of the Sun. Some of you who pay attention to astronomy and are more than 15 years old, and just saying that kind of makes me feel old, may remember in 2004 and 2012 when there was a lot of hubbub about the transit of Venus in front of the Sun. This is the rare case when, because Venus' orbit is tilted relative to Earth's, you get pairs of transits eight years apart, and then 121.5 or 105.5 years apart. The event was touted in the media because the last pair, back in 1874 and 1882, represented the last time that we could measure the AU by this method alone, and at the time, it was thought to be the only method available to give the measurement of the AU. What I mean is that since 1882, we have developed other methods, but back in 1882, it was thought that this was the only way to make that measurement. The previous pair in 1761 and 1769 was the first major effort by the world's population of scientists that the AU was attempted to be measured, and several world governments participated. The idea is, again, that we know from Kepler's laws that Venus is at about 0.7 AU from the Sun. I'm not going to give the exact number, but it's about 0.7. And we know that Earth has a certain size. If you are at one point on Earth, one longitude specifically, and a friend is at another part of Earth, then you know the distance between them. And then you can both observe when Venus starts to transit the Sun. It will be slightly different. If you and your friend are the same distance apart and the AU is really, really big, then Venus would appear to enter the Sun's disk at nearly the same time for both of you. If you and your friend are the same distance apart and the AU is really, really small, then Venus would appear to enter the Sun's disk at very different times. And by very different, I, I mean on the order of minutes. So, it all gets down to geometry. Two observers at different spots will observe the event happen at slightly different times because of the angles being different due to parallax, which, again, I'll get to now in about a minute or so. When this was first attempted by Jeremiah Horrocks in 1639, he got a distance of about 59.4 million miles, or 95.6 million meters, off by a factor of a third. In 1761 and 1769, many world governments sent out observers carrying the latest clocks and observing equipment. When the numbers were crunched, different people's values were off by only 1% from the real value. This was practically 250 years ago. In 1874 and 1882, more observers were sent out, and based on the observations, we knew the AU to better than 0.2%, or only 310,000 miles. 
The techniques of measuring the AU today are different, and they are much more precise. They involve radar sounding of Venus, basically hitting it with high-intensity radar and seeing how long it takes the radar signal to return. We use not only Venus, but also spacecraft and asteroids as well. Since we have incredibly precise measurements of the speed of light today, the AU can be calculated to a precision of only plus or minus 30 meters, or 0.000000002%. So that's an order of, what, 10 million times better than about 120 years ago. Still, the value 120 years ago, pretty darn good, 0.2%, distance to the sun. That's impressive, at least to me. The AU forms the foundation of our distance ladder, and it is a fundamental measurement based on the size of the Earth, the speed of light, and the physics of Kepler's laws, which are manifestation of the law of gravity. So, basic measurement, we can do it. The next rung of the distance ladder is the only other direct method of measuring distance that's based on simple, everyday geometry, no numbers, such as the AU. It's called parallax. The idea behind parallax is that you have two observation points, and because each observation point is looking at an object at a slightly different angle, just like your two observers observing the transit of Venus, it will appear to be at a slightly different place relative to a more distant object. The classic simple example of this that you can do, even if you're listening to this on your morning commute, unless you're in heavy traffic, or you're not that careful of a driver, so then don't do this, what you can do is you can hold up one finger, a little in front of your face, you know, maybe a foot or half meter away, and close one eye. Line your finger up with a somewhat nearby object, like a light post. Open your other eye and close the first one. Your finger will no longer block the light post. That's the effect of parallax, because your eyes are two different observation points. Now, use the same idea, but your eyes aren't the observation points. The Earth is, in its orbit around the Sun, from one time to six months later. Exactly six months apart, Earth gives you a baseline of 2 AU. Take a very careful picture of the sky at each point, and look for stars that have moved from one picture to the next. A star that's close to Earth will appear to have moved relative to stars that are much farther away. You might be thinking that this requires ridiculously careful and precise observations and measurements, kind of like what Hovind implied. It does. The first stellar parallax wasn't discovered until 1838 for star 61 Cygni, which is 3.498 plus or minus 0.007 parsecs away. And now I've introduced a new unit of measure, the parsec. Parsecs are based on the fundamental unit of measure of the solar system, the AU, and one arc second. Remember that there are 360 degrees in a circle, each degree is made of 60 arc minutes, and each minute is made of 60 arc seconds. To give you an idea of how small these angles are, the moon is half a degree across, or 30 arc minutes, or about 1800 arc seconds. A human hair, held 10 meters or 30 feet away, is one arc second across. Very small. Why do we care? Well, that's because a parsec is defined as the distance an object must be from Earth to show a parallax movement against the fixed stars of two arc seconds in six months. Why two? Because the parallax is actually defined as half the motion, so that you can use right triangles to make the math easier. 
it's one of those things that doesn't really matter for this particular discussion. The take-home message is that if you measure a star move against the stars that are much farther away by the width of two human hairs held 10 meters away over the course of six months, then it is one parsec away. And that's about 3.26156 light years. This is, as I said, a very small motion, but it's visible. We do have equipment, and we had equipment almost 180 years ago, that was able to make this kind of precise measurement. It's actually a very interesting story, and there is an entire book called Parallax that goes through the process that was used to really discover this by the scientific community, and I highly recommend it for anyone who's interested in the history of science or this topic in particular. It's by the same person who wrote the book Longitude, so uh, which I think I've recommended on a previous episode. Anyway... Getting back to the topic at hand, you have a parsec, which is defined by only knowing two things, the astronomical unit and, well, how far a star moves between six months against stars that are much, much farther away. Based on the way we've set up our measuring system, uh, we have the unit of a parsec that is introduced. This is why you'll hear a lot of astronomers who do astrometry, the precise measuring of positions, they're going to talk about distances in parsecs rather than light years. And you'll also have a stupid Star Wars quote every now and then about the Kessel Run or something. You'll also hear a lot of galactic astronomers talk in units of parsecs or kiloparsecs or KPC or megaparsecs or MPC because the distances of their objects are based on the distance ladder which has, as its second rung, parallax, which uses parsecs as the primary distance measure. This is also why I said that you have to know the AU to know a parsec. The AU is your baseline for observation, just like if you want to know how far away an object is with your eyes, your brain has to have an idea of how far apart your eyes are. You measure all of these angles, and you report them in distances and parsecs, but unless you know the value of the AU, you can't convert the parsec into a real physical measurement. In fact, Based on the dates that I've given you in the last few minutes, we were measuring stellar parallax decades before we had a good estimate for the AU. This is also why you'll often see distances given in parallax units, the angle of milli-arc-seconds, or MAS, rather than real physical units. The angular measurement is more fundamental. It's the observational or the observed number, while the conversion to light years or something else is based on other rungs of the distance ladder. That way, if you report in papers the parallax of something in milliarc seconds, then you can use whatever the latest value of the AU is at that time in order to get the actual distance. Uh, it might sound kind of silly at this point, but it's sort of by convention. It's like, well, I'm going to give a, an analogy that probably none of you are going to understand, but I'll say it anyway. From my own work, there's uh, a lot of work that I do with dating planetary surfaces with craters. All of the crater ages are based on models of the impact flux, how many craters come down and hit a surface with time. So what the convention is, what we're supposed to do, but some people don't, is that we report the actual observed counted crater density on the surface, and then we report the model age based on whatever model we're using. It's that actual crater counts, that crater density on the surface, that's the observed number, and that's not really going to change much from person to person, whereas the models might change significantly because we have uh, a lot of uncertainties with understanding the flux of impact events in the solar system. 
With that perhaps crappy analogy in mind, how far does parallax get us out in the universe? Again, for an object to be one parsec away, it has to move a really tiny amount. But astronomers are really good at making very, very precise measurements. So good that precision is typically on the order of milli-arc seconds. And we've sent satellites up with the singular goal of doing this for a whole lot of stars. The Hipparchus satellite in the 1990s measured parallaxes for over 100,000 stars out to a few hundred parsecs. In other words, almost a thousand light years away. Its successor, Gaia, is currently taking data and has the goal of measuring distances to one billion, with a B, objects by being able to measure accurately the uh, position of these objects to only 20 micro arc seconds. Meanwhile, Hubble, with its current wide-field planetary camera 3, or with PIC3, can also measure to 20 to 40 milli, not milli, sorry, micro arc seconds. That's 10 to the minus 6 arc seconds. This kind of precision allows us to measure objects about 5,000 parsecs away, or about, uh, what, 15, 16,000 light-years away, or about 5 kiloparsecs. That is still very much within our galaxy, but it lets us get to the next rung of the distance ladder, and it's going to take us out of the realm of direct measurements and into the realm of standard candles. And I lied a few minutes ago because I'm going back to the creationist claim. Already, with just these direct measurements, just based pretty much on measuring angles and measuring how far away we are from the sun, we have gotten well beyond 6,000 light years, and we are still very much within our own galaxy. And another quick note before we get to standard candles is that there are other kinds of parallax, known as statistical parallax, moving cluster parallax, and expansion parallax. I'm just going to mention that statistical parallax lets you get farther because it relies on measuring redshift and blueshifted spectra of tight groups of stars, and this is an easier measurement to make than astrometrical positions. But that's all I'm going to say about it. Basically, there are other types of parallax. They get you different distances. They're used. Moving on. The idea behind a standard candle is in its name. It's a standard candle. Sorry, it's, it's hard to be more uh, direct about that, but astronomers are pretty bad at inventing interesting names, so we pretty much just name things what they are. It's a standard candle. A candle made to a certain standard such that they are all the same. So if I open a box and uh, these candles are all the same, and I have a friend light several of them and place them at different distances from me in a dark room, then I can assume that the ones that are dimmer are farther away. In fact, if I very precisely measure the amount of light coming from each one, I could use the inverse square law for light. This means that the intensity drops off by the square of the distance to the object to determine how far away it is relative to all the other ones that I measure. So, what that means is, I can measure the brightest candle, and then I measure another one, and I find that it's only 25% as bright. And then I measure another one, and I find that it's only uh, 6% as bright. I know that that second one that was 25% as bright is twice as far away. I know that because I take 0.25, I basically take the square root, and so now I know that the one that is closer to me is 50% the distance to the farther one. Similarly, if I take the farthest one that was only 6% as bright, square it, then I get something that's about four times farther away than that one that is brightest and closest to me. So that's the inverse square law. It is a basic, 
basic property of physics that's been known for hundreds of years. It has innumerable measurements that verified it. It's basically, it's a law. That's why it's called a law. It's one of the laws of physics. So with that in mind, all I have to do or all I need is to know the real distance to the first candle and then I can use that principle or that law of these being standard candles in the inverse square law to know the distance to all of the others. Fortunately, in this example, I know how far apart my eyes are, and so I know the first one is close enough that it shows parallax, and so I can get that measurement. So that's what a standard candle is. The best standard candles are going to be bright, and they're going to be numerous, and they're going to be real standard candles. And this also gets into the idea of the distance ladder. We use the lower rungs to calibrate the closest objects on the higher rungs. The most popular standard candle, and the one that's most close by, is known as the Cepheid Variable Star. Cepheids are easy to identify, they're very bright, and they're a standard candle. They are a variable star, and they were first proposed to be used as a standard candle by Harvard astronomer Henrietta Swan Leavitt in 1908. And I like to point her out whenever I can because not only are Cepheids incredibly important in understanding distances in the universe, but it was a very important early contribution to astronomy by a female scientist in days when the field was almost exclusively done by men. So Cepheid variable stars are named for a type star that was first studied in detail, Delta Cepheid. They pulsate in brightness on cycles ranging from days to months. And based on those that can be directly measured distance-wise with parallax, there is a direct relationship with how long the pulsation lasts and how bright they really are. So remember, we have the inverse square law for light, so we can really measure how bright something appears to be, but we don't know how bright it really is unless we can measure its distance. So when we can get the distance by parallax, we know how bright it really is. And the pulsation period just takes simple observations that most amateur astronomers can do these days, and there are whole societies built around that, like the AAVSO, the American Association of Variable Star Observers. So. We calibrate the Cepheid variable star period luminosity relationship with the Cepheids that are a known distance away by parallax. Then, because Cepheids are very bright, we can observe them throughout our galaxy, but we can also observe them in neighboring galaxies like Andromeda. Understanding the Cepheid variable star period luminosity relationship is a critical part of the distance ladder, and it was one of the original primary goals of the Hubble Space Telescope get the parallax to more distant Cepheids so that we can better calibrate this rung of the distance ladder. With that in mind, some Cepheids are anomalous, and there are some unresolved issues. However, those don't contribute significantly to the uncertainty in the method, and Cepheids are very good for measuring distances out to about 1 megaparsec, the Andromeda Galaxy. In fact, it was Edwin Hubble who used Cepheids in 1924 to show that the Andromeda Galaxy was much farther away than anything in our own galaxy, which solved what, at the time, was known as the Great Debate in astronomy, whether the Milky Way was the universe or whether it was just one star island amidst a bunch of others. Since Cepheids get us to neighboring galaxies, they also get us to supernova. Specifically, our next standard candle is supernova of type 1A, or often abbreviated as SN1A. Often, 
the only kind of supernova that people think about is an exploding giant star at the end of its life. That would be a type 2. Type 1a is a very specific kind of stellar explosion, and because it is so specific, and it only explodes based on certain processes known in physics, it is a standard candle. It happens when you have a binary star system, so two stars orbiting each other, and one of the stars is a white dwarf. This white dwarf, the burnt-out core of a previous star, is so close to its companion that it pulls material onto its surface. When it reaches 1.44 times the mass of our star, this is called the Chandrasekhar limit after its discoverer, the force of gravity on the core of the star is too much, and it collapses into a neutron star. I should note that this is what I was taught, and it still seems to be the broad consensus view, but there is a different mechanism in the literature as to why these happen. Regardless, because of the fundamental physics limit of stars being able to support themselves, the energy released is the same from each event to each event, which means that the brightness is the same, and so again we have a standard candle. Since we know how bright they should be, based on observations with lower-rung standard candles like Cepheid variables to their host galaxies, and we know how bright they appear to be, then we can use the simple inverse square law to again get the actual distance. This particular standard candle, because it's much rarer than Cepheid variables, and happens to be hazardous to life on Earth, hasn't happened nearby such that we've been able to calibrate it with lower rungs like parallax. All we can do is calibrate it with the second rung, or actually no, the third rung, which are the Cepheids. So, the distances to type 1a supernova are calibrated usually with Cepheids to the host galaxy. They can be calibrated with other means that I'm not going to talk about much, like the planetary nebula luminosity function and various other things, but they are calibrated to their host galaxy. And, because they are about 5 billion, again with a b, times brighter than the sun, they are visible across a lot of the universe, getting us out to gigaparsecs, or GPC. The observation of supernova type 1a are so important as standard candles that there are telescope facilities that generally have a standing policy that if any type 1a supernova are discovered by any telescope anywhere, and then it goes out on the wire basically, they immediately stop observing what the astronomers who had that night booked, and they instead observe the supernova. By measuring its light curve, which is the brightness over time, we can get where it was at its brightest. And then, again, inverse square law, and we have a distance. By using this, we can get distances of all types of galaxies more than halfway across the visible universe, billions of light years away. The final rung of the distance ladder that I'm going to discuss in this episode is Hubble's Law, which relies on redshift. Hubble's Law is based on the fundamental picture of the universe that it is expanding, which even creationists tend to recognize because it states in the Bible something about God stretching out the heavens. Hubble's Law can be succinctly thought of like a moving walkway on top of a moving walkway on top of a moving walkway ad infinitum, but let's just picture a person on a stationary sidewalk. That's us. The sidewalk is the universe. As we stand on a busy sidewalk, we see people moving around us in different directions at different speeds. That would be a static universe. Now, picture a moving sidewalk that is set up in such a way that it moves away from you in all directions, and the farther it is from you, the faster it's moving. Hence the idea of a moving sidewalk on top of a moving sidewalk on top of a moving sidewalk, or something sort of like that. So, 
nearby, people can still move around you at all directions at all speeds. Their own motion is very large in comparison to the motion of the sidewalk that's trying to carry them away. But as someone gets farther and farther away, their own motion becomes minuscule compared with the motion of the sidewalk, and so they are all moving away from you once you get to a certain distance. And if you measure a big group of them that are all the same distance away, perhaps because they're all holding a standard candle, then you can average out their individual motions and get a pretty good estimate of how fast the walkway is trying to carry them away from you. That's the idea behind Hubble's law. Once you get out to about roughly 10 megaparsecs, the expansion of the universe dominates over individual motions, and the distance is simply the velocity of the object moving away divided by Hubble's constant. I I did say simply there, didn't I? Well, this was actually the subject of a lot of debate as I was entering my undergraduate education, but it's pretty much been consensusized since then. The velocity measurements are easy. Redshift. I don't care what Ken Tovin says or what other creationists like to claim. We pretty much know what redshift is. Redshift is a direct measurement that can be made and requires no assumptions. You measure the spectrum of a distant object. You compare that with a similar object on Earth, like, say, looking for specific hydrogen lines in stars from these distant galaxies. Those hydrogen lines must be a certain wavelength of light because of quantum mechanics. But in these distant star spectra, they will be at different wavelengths once they get to Earth, stretched out due to the expanding universe. All you have to do is measure where they are now relative to where they should be. And that's the redshift, or Z, or if you're Canadian, Z, value. Now, I did say simply, I said that's all you have to do. There are some other small complications to this, like extinction values and other things. That's the basic idea. We know how to do this. Again, I refrain, or I go back to the refrain that I sometimes use in this show. Scientists aren't stupid. Creationists and other people in other disciplines, like if you're talking about climate change, for example, they tend to think that they have these gotcha, oh, astronomers or scientists didn't think about this. Uh, yeah, we did. So, with that in mind, moving on, all you have to do is measure redshift and you get the redshift or Z or Z value. And as a side note, just like star distances are often quoted in parsecs, or they often give you the angle of motion in milliarc seconds, if you look at measurements of distances to faraway galaxies, you'll still often hear people quote them in terms of Z values, like this is a galaxy with a redshift value of uh, Z equals 1.4, which gives you a distance of, say, since I don't do this, uh, maybe, say, 10 billion light years away, uh, based on a value of 75 for the Hubble constant. But it's the Z values that are the ones that are quoted, because those are the actual data being observed, and then astronomers can use whatever the latest model is at the time to convert those to an actual distance. And... Converting the z-value to a real unit of distance requires knowing the Hubble constant, and this was what was debated and argued for for decades. The units of the Hubble constant are kilometers per second per megaparsec, which does simplify to just per second, or hertz, uh, but it basically... You, you need all those extra distances in there because that way you can intuitively think of the Hubble constant as it's the additional speed that an object moves away from you for every megaparsec that it is far away. 
So if the Hubble constant were 1, then what I could do is I could tell you that if a galaxy is 1 megaparsec away, then it is going to be carried away from you by 1 kilometer per second based on the expansion rate of the universe. If I tell you that a galaxy is 10 megaparsecs away, then you can use the Hubble constant value of 1 and say that, okay, that galaxy is being carried away from me at 10 kilometers per second based on the expansion rate of the universe. So that's why we have all those extra units in there. You know, sometimes astronomers are simple, sometimes we're complicated. The first good measurement of the Hubble constant was in 1958 by Alan Sandage, who estimated it at 75, but for 50 years, as I said, it was fought over. There was the big camp that kept measuring it to be 100, and there was the little camp that kept measuring it to be 50. But over the last 15 years, this has been measured very carefully with space-based missions. Again, just like Cepheid variables, this was a fundamental question driving the Hubble Space Telescope, which, based on data from 2001 to 2005, using another distance technique that I haven't talked about as calibration, that uh, the Sinyaev-Zeldovich effect, they measured it to be 72 plus or minus 8. WMAP in 2007 measured it to be 70.4 plus or minus 1.5. And then they narrowed that by 2012 to 69.32 plus or minus 0.80. The Planck mission, or Planck mission, just uh, under two years ago, released a value of 67.80 plus or minus 0.77. So it's converging on a value of about 67 to 70. Not incredibly precise when you compare that with how well we know the AU to, you know, the 10 millionth of a percent, but keep in mind that this is really the top rung of the distance ladder, and so all of the compounding uncertainties from the rungs below it play a role in the uncertainty of that value, or at least all of the ones that have gone into that particular measurement of the Hubble constant. But again, the point is that this is another rung on the distance ladder, and while this one is only really useful once the galaxy is well beyond our local group of galaxies, it does get us to the very edge of the observable universe. All you have to do is measure the, the uh, z-value, and hence it forms the topmost rung of the astronomical distance ladder. I've gone on in this episode for about 32 minutes once you cut out that 10-minute or no, 5-minute Art Bell clip. I have still left a lot out of this discussion. There are a lot of other rungs on the ladder, all used to calibrate each other. For example, the planetary nebula luminosity function, which is something that I actually briefly worked on calibrations for when I was an undergraduate student. They get you to galaxies that are also a few billion light years away, and they helped calibrate Cepheids to type 1a supernova. There's also the Tully-Fisher relationship between a spiral galaxy's spin rate, which can be measured with spectra because the side that's moving away from you is going to be redshifted, and the side that's moving towards you is going to be blue-shifted, and their brightness. This is calibrated by Supernova 1A, and it's used throughout the observable universe. Then there's the Faber-Jackson relation, which is sort of the same as the Tully-Fisher, but it's for elliptical galaxies. These both calibrate between Supernova and Hubble's Law. Closer to home, there's main sequence fitting, which is where you have a group of stars like an open cluster. They all form it at the same time, you map out their brightness relative to their color, and most will plot along a set line on a graph called a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. By knowing how bright that line should be from stars based on parallax, again, this was big important result from the, uh, from the Hipparchus satellite, we know how far away that cluster is. 
That's another way that we can get between our galaxy and nearby ones because we can observe open clusters in nearby galaxies. Similarly, there are RR Lyra variable stars, which are red giants that get us to distances within our galaxy and nearby galaxies, helping to calibrate the stellar to the galactic distance ladder rungs. All of these have incredibly important roles in astronomy, and all are inter- and intra-calibrated and extended in distance range at every opportunity. The distance ladder is still an active area of research in astronomy, but that shouldn't be taken to mean that it's poorly known. It starts from basic geometry, with the direct methods, all measuring the AU and parsecs, and then we use these to identify distances to standard candles, each candle overlapping in range with other candles to form a network and web to understand our place in the universe. And, even with just the direct measurements, we can still show that the universe is much larger than 6,000 light-years across, and hence older than 6,000 light-years, Unless you want to assume that an all-powerful deity is trying to trick us, in which case you can just go to the refrain, God did it. Choosing to ignore this science is something that Mr. Hovind and other creationists like him clearly do. They ignore the countless hours of incredibly meticulous work and observations that go into making all of these measurements. They ignore the basic science that goes into understanding how these are set up and how they work and why they are reliable. I suppose it shouldn't surprise most people listening to this when I say that it's obvious from this that it's just another case of creationists ignoring basic science, but sometimes, and I'm not quite sure why, I'm just amazed by how much they simply choose to go through life with their fingers in their ears and their heads up their collective ass. With that out of my system, there is a tiny bit of new news related to episode 108 on practical applications of uncertainty. We now know where Saturn is to within one mile, or about 1.5 kilometers. The new value is 20 times more accurate than previous estimates, and was made possible by using the Very Long Baseline Array, or VLBA, of radio telescopes, which combines the signals of multiple telescopes to make the equivalent length of one that's the length of the array. They did this by looking at Saturn's position relative to quasars, distant background objects that are stationary relative to us because of their huge distances. The new measurement is the equivalent of measuring the width of an American dime from 2,000, or 3 megameters, away. So take that, Kent Hovind, who says that we can't make precise measurements in astronomy. Based on some feedback on the Facebook page for the podcast and email, I'm going to try introducing a new segment to the show, and that's on logical fallacies. Perhaps it's just me being anal, but I really like identifying logical fallacies, and I think that they're fairly useful in order to uh, pick out flaws in arguments. Doesn't mean the argument itself is wrong, it just means that the logic behind it is wrong. Be careful of the fallacy fallacy. With that brief intro, I'm going to go back to what Kent Hovind said uh, for much of his argument against parallax, which really boils down to the line, it just, it, it can't be done that he doesn't care what people say in his mind it's impossible to make the measurement. And it's impossible because the triangles involved are so gosh darn skinny. This is both an argument from incredulity and an argument from ridicule. The argument from incredulity is of the form, I can't believe X, therefore X is not true. It's not based on any other information, it's not based on any form of reality testing or measurement, 
It's just what you think. Because of that, it falls under the class of genetic fallacies, meaning that the conclusion is suggested based solely on something's origins rather than what it actually is. It's also sometimes called an argument from personal incredulity because it's not a generally, this can't be true, it's a, I don't believe that this can be true. My response is, I don't care what you think, you're wrong. Genetic fallacies are a subtype of red herring fallacies, which is a broad class where something seems plausible, but ultimately it's an irrelevant diversionary tactic. Common in mystery novels, hence the red herring in the mystery novel is always something that you try to pick out. Red herring is also the broad category under which falls the appeal to emotion, or in this case, the appeal to ridicule, which is what uh, is our next fallacy. It's inherent to the way that Mr. Hovind made his argument, that it's an appeal to or argument from ridicule. This again shows no specific data or information on why the claim is wrong, but it simply says, hey, isn't X silly? Yeah, because X is silly, it can't possibly be real or true. Mr. Hovind clearly wants you to think that because he spent over a minute talking about how gosh darn skinny those triangles are and making a false analogy to surveying tools that it's impossible. And I say it's a false analogy because surveying tools weren't built for this kind of precision that's needed for astronomy, but I'll get into more about false analogies in future episodes. Also uh, inherent in his argument, there's the false precision fallacy, the thing about 15 decimal points, which is a form of vagueness. And there's an appeal against authority, where you basically say, hey, look at all those stupid scientists in their ivory towers. They think they know everything, but they actually don't. So with that said, that's the segment for this episode on logical fallacies, where I really wanted to just focus on the two main ones, the argument from incredulity and the appeal to ridicule, and then just mention the three others that I happened to find. I'm open to feedback, including uh, overwhelming negative feedback on whether this was at all useful or is worth keeping in some modified way, perhaps, and also, of course, if I've made any mistakes. I am not the logician. I don't know if that's a word, but we'll say it is. And so I am perfectly open to making mistakes. I try not to, but eh, nobody's perfect. With that said, we'll get into a little bit of feedback, because, again, uh, based on feedback... Feedback was the thing that most people wanted me to keep in terms of other segments. There is first a clarification from last episode's topic on ET communication. Brandon wrote in on Facebook and said that Frank Drake wrote a great book in the 1990s about his work with SETI and attempts to communicate with non-Earth intelligence. That my interview with Karen mentions him and the Order of the Dolphins. The man that Karen spoke of, who ran the dolphin experiments, was a legitimate scientist, which Karen actually did say, uh, when the first meeting at Green Bank happened. Frank Drake had nothing to do with the later experiments mentioned in the podcast episode. That Brandon wanted to make that clear, Drake has added to the body of knowledge in fantastic ways, and he didn't want him to be confused with a pseudoscientist. And with that said... I completely agree. Frank Drake has made great contributions to scientists. With that, or to science, with that in mind, though, that's actually not incredibly relevant. You can still make great contributions to science and then believe in some pseudoscience. There's uh, Linus Pauly is the go-to example for Steve Novella, who won Nobel Prize and yet believed that vitamin C was a cure-all for everything. But yes, Frank Drake great scientist, made a lot of important contributions, those contributions being to legitimate science. 
There's also feedback related to episode 120 on James McCanny. I got an interesting comment from Mary in Boston on the podcast website. She wrote, quote, your quote-unquote argument is basically that McCanny disagrees with standard science, so he must be wrong. You also lie about real results like water on comet nuclei, referring to remote second-hand observations rather than in-situ measurements. You are what we call, quote, a textbook repeater, end quote. Keep defending the holy grail. McCanny debated NASA's finest David Morrison on Coast to Coast AM and won the debate by popular call-in vote. Trouble is, the public believes him, not you, in caps, so get over it already, end quote. I responded to Mary with this. Mary, you make several points. I normally don't respond to someone who just denies everything I wrote without any evidence, but I will in this case. First, no. I don't say that he's wrong just because he disagrees with modern science. I have explicitly explained why modern science is what it is, and why everything that McCanny says disagrees with the observable evidence. Two, I'm lying about the data? Really? Every observation... Not only the remote sensing, but also the one lander that we now have on a comet shows that comets have ices, that they are dust and rock held together by ices. 3. Are you seriously citing a screened call's voice vote to a paranormal-themed radio program as hard data that McCanny is correct? I don't think anything more needs to be said. 4. It doesn't matter what popular opinion is among people who have not done the research. People can still be wrong even if it's the quote-unquote popular view, especially among people who haven't studied it. And that's what I wrote to Mary. My point in relating this is to show you some of the kinds of negative feedback that I receive, and what anyone who writes that kind of message should expect from me if I do happen to respond. You need to not misrepresent my argument, and I'm going to ask you some basic questions. And if you cite coast-to-coast as evidence for something other than people believe stupid stuff, I'm going to question your evidence. So with that said, uh, there is no puzzler for this episode, no Q&A, but I had three other segments and we're almost at the hour mark. So I'll give you the standard. You can find me online, podcast.sjrdesign.net. You can find me on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, and I think that I'm just one or two people under 500 likes, uh, so you can make my January by going to the Facebook page and liking it. And you can find me personally on Twitter as Dr. Dr. Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. I am going to be traveling quite a bit over the next few months for work, especially as New Horizons gets closer and closer and closer to Pluto, closest encounter on Bastille Day, January, not January, July 15th or 14th, depending on your time zone, so everyone mark your calendars for that. But I am still going to try to get out regular episodes once every other week, or not every other week, but twice a month, basically. It's not quite bi-weekly. It gives me a little bit of extra room than bi-weekly. So, with that said... That wraps up this topic for the 124th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it, especially because it was a longer episode. 
and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website, podcast.sgrdesign.net. And if you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email to the website address. Just replace that first dot with an at. So it's podcast at sgrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. And for Facebook people, I have been uh, posting a lot more news and just general thoughts about stuff, so I'm trying to use that more. And uh, also, you can tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. And uh, so far, everyone who's messaged me in 2015, I've responded so far. So if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. And also, please write a review and rate this on your podcast's website or service of choice. Also, tell people. Share the love. Share the science. Share, share the skepticism. Yeah, there we go. That sounds right. <laughs>